Friend, what do you think is the most important, profound question in life we can ask? I mean, if we want to go through life with some moral self-awareness, some true purpose, what's the big question for which we hope uh, there is a big, true answer? How about, why am I here? That's a classic. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with my life? Is there any great purpose in life beyond just mere existence? What happens when I die? Or perhaps your mind doesn't run along that sort of philosophical track. Uh, You're more an emotional, relational type person. And so your big question in life is, how do I find my soulmate? How can I ensure my family is a loving family? How can I ensure lifelong happiness? Or perhaps you're more of a more materialistic bent. Never mind the higher purposes of life, Pastor John. How do I make a lot of money? Answer me that. Or maybe you're a hedonist, someone who lives for pleasure. And so your big question is, how can I cram more sex, drugs, and rock and roll into my three score and ten? Of course, where we go looking for our answer to life's big question is going to determine the sort of answer we receive. You may believe that it's best to consult the works of Socrates. You're going to get a certain kind of answer. Or or Deepak Chopra, or your favorite movie or pop star, or your mother, or a university prof you admire, or the Marquis de Sade. And adding to the complexity, what we think life's most important question is, may not actually be life's most important question. We may be asking the wrong thing, or perhaps we're asking the right question, but we're inquiring of the wrong person. Kim Kardashian doesn't know any more than we do. But God, he knows everything. He's omniscient. And that's why we need to go to the Bible. Because that's the only place where God has disclosed himself to us in human words. But even as Christians, we don't come to the Bible with our own agenda, do we? That's not how this works. No, we must allow the scriptures to set the agenda and the categories. We must allow the Bible and the Spirit working through the Word of God to teach and instruct our finite, ignorant, self-sufficient, sin-blighted minds. This book which is the culture-transcending, authoritative self-disclosure of our Creator God, this book tells us what the most important question anyone can ask is. And it's from this question that the plot line of the Bible flows. If you look in your bulletins, you can see this. The big question is this. How can an impure, sinful, and mortal creature find access into the presence of God, both now and and in the world to come. And all those other questions about the purpose of our existence and and how we relate to our money, family, sex, love, pleasure, any question that we can think of, uh, friends, those questions can never, ever be answered without first understanding this biblical teaching. 
And over the course of salvation history, God is chronologically, he is progressively revealing more and more and more. And Bible readers soon learn in answer to this most important of questions that God himself has graciously provided a way for sinful humans to be granted access into his presence, both now and in eternity. And a significant part of this revelation unfolds in the ritual of the burnt offering of Leviticus chapter 1. I don't think many Christians would consider turning to the book of Leviticus to answer the most important question, uh, but that's where God wants his people to begin. And probably the best way to start things off is to first understand the sacrifice of burnt offering in its original Old Testament context. But we need to know what exactly is God prescribing here procedurally, physically, what takes place during this sacrifice. And once that's settled, once we really understand the procedure, then we can ask, okay, what does the burnt offering accomplish? What purpose does the burnt offering serve? What is the nation of Israel being taught through this offering? And you can see in your handout, Israel is being taught three things. It's the three points of our sermon this morning. Number one, the Lord accepts the worshiper who draws near on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice. Number two, the Lord requires that the blood and body of the substitute be sacrificed to make atonement. And three, the Lord is pleased with the sacrifice. And then to close, we'll look forward in salvation history, 1,500 years into the future from the time of Leviticus, and ask, how does the sacrifice of burnt offering point ahead to its proper fulfillment in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is always the interpretive key Uh, Every passage in the Bible either points forward to what God will accomplish through Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, or it points back to what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. So at the end of the sermon, we'll understand the significance of the Levitical burnt offering for the new covenant Christian even though burning animals on an altar is no longer part of how we worship God. We haven't done that for 2,000 years. And we'll know the answer to the most important question in all of life. How can an impure, sinful, mortal creature find access into the presence of God, both now and in the world to come? All right, in Leviticus chapter 1, three burnt offerings are described. There's the burnt offerings of cattle, burnt offerings of sheep and goats, and burnt offerings of birds. And I'll be zeroing in on the first offering today, the burnt offering of cattle, because the things God is teaching us in the burnt offerings of cattle can just as well be applied to all the other sacrifices. So what exactly is God prescribing? Procedurally, physically, what happens during the sacrifice of burnt offering. Look at the second part of verse 2. This is what the Lord commands Moses to say to the nation of Israel, in whose presence God dwells. Never forget that. In whose presence God dwells. Uh, Verse 2, the second part. When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd 
or the flock. And what that means is the sacrificial offering had to be a domestic animal. It couldn't be an animal that you hunted out in the wild, wounded with a well-placed shot to its flank, and then dragged over to the tent of meeting to offer up in sacrifice. It had to be a domestic animal from your own herd, your own flock. Brothers and sisters, an essential ingredient of this sacrifice was that it was costly. The animal, which was going to be totally consumed by fire, was coming out of your pocketbook. And you got nothing, not so much as a morsel of meat. It was all for God. Anthropomorphically speaking, God eats it. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. As King David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So, the Israelite raised this sacrificial animal and he fed it. David, I've got a question for you. Do you think, David, it would be fun to have a pet goat? You don't? I think it would be awesome to have a pet goat. Uh, I think it would be really cool. My, my mom actually had a pet goat when she was growing up. It was named Susie. And amazingly, her brother, my uncle, wound up calling his own daughter Susie. <laughs> so my cousin was named after the family goat. That's how much my uncle loved his pet goat, I, I uh, David. But I mean... I don't know if you've ever seen these things on YouTube, but baby goats are basically, they have millions and millions of followers and hits on YouTube and Instagram. They're basically the cutest animal in the world. Uh, All they do is look adorable and jump on top of high things. And uh, so, David, I want you to pretend, David, that you're an Old Testament Israelite and your family has a goat. And you have to take care of it, David. Uh, You have to feed it. That goat is your responsibility. It's one of your chores. But this animal isn't just a pet. This goat is going to be sacrificed and then burned for your sin, David. And as much as you may love the goat, you know what has to be done. Because what's more important? Your sin and your rebellion against God being forgiven so that you can dwell in God's presence both now and in eternity? or the life of your pet goat. Furthermore, only perfect animals were acceptable to offer to the Lord in sacrifice. Only the best is good enough for God. Verse 3, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, so we're talking about an entire bull here, the most expensive of all the domestic animals, you were to offer a male without defect because the animal's physical perfection was to accord with the pure, holy character of God. If the animal was maimed in some way, if it was blind or if it had warts even, it was unsuitable to sacrifice to God. But before the animal was burned, various other things had to be done to it. 3b, you must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting 
so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And as you can see on the diagram in your bulletin, inside the tent of meeting or tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the throne room of God on earth. I apologize for the quality of it. It looks like it was photocopied from a 1975 photocopier there, but <laughs> that's all we could do. But the outside of the tent of meeting is the large outside the tent of meeting is the large brazen altar for burnt offerings. It measures about seven and a half by four and a half feet. You can see it in your diagram. This then is what God commands Moses to tell the Israelites. Verse four: You, that is the worshiper. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. The worshiper then has to kill the animal himself. As verse 11 tells us on the north side of the altar, verse 5, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord which means this animal is being slaughtered in God's presence. The blood is then collected in a basin by the priest as it pours out of the dying animal and splashed against the sides of the altar. Next step, verse 6. You, the offerer, are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. This means the worshiper is in the midst of the blood and the guts. He is the butcher. This is his job. The priests aren't doing the dirty work for him. They're busy preparing the fire on the altar, a fire that will totally consume the worshiper's costly, perfect sacrifice. Verse 7, the sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. So, the animal is being chopped up by the worshiper and then the priest burns it bit by bit on top of the altar, beginning with the head and the fat. And while the priests do this, the worshiper, he's preparing the other parts. He washes the hind legs and, and the uh, internal organs of the animal, removing any traces of excrement. This washing was probably done in the large labor between the altar and the tabernacle. You can see that in your handout as well. Verse 9, you are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. And in all three types of burnt offerings, the law of Moses makes it clear exactly what the worshiper does and what the priest does. The worshiper brings the animal from his flock or herd. The worshiper kills it. The worshiper skins it or guts it. And then the worshiper chops it up. The priest then splashes the blood of the animal on the altar and places the dismembered carcass of the sacrifice on the fire to be burned as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And note that refrain is repeated three times word for word in verses 9 13 and 17. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Hebrew literature is all about repetition. I think English literature is all about being succinct. You know, Hebrew literature is all about repetition. If something is repeated, it means that's very, very important. So the angels circling God's throne don't just call God holy. They call him holy. Holy, holy. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord.
All right, that's the first part completed. Now we know what God prescribed procedurally, physically. We understand what happens now during the burnt offering sacrifice. But what does all this accomplish? What purpose does this serve? What is Israel being taught through this offering? Look at your point number one in your bulletin. The Lord accepts the worshiper who draws near on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice. And that's good news, friends. This gets to the very root of our big question about life. And notice that the book of Leviticus begins. We're in chapter one. Leviticus begins with the good news that God allows sinful people to come into his presence. God accepts sinful people, provided they offer a substitutionary sacrifice at his altar. And that sacrifice may be brought by anyone. The Bible tells us that different animals could be offered in sacrifice depending on their level of wealth. So if someone had a good income, then the larger, more expensive animal was offered. If a person was poor, a pigeon or a dove could be brought. The point being, no one was barred from access to God on the basis of income or ability. But the atoning sacrifice, which acts as that person's substitute, it had to be perfect. The law demanded that the animal be without blemish. It could have no defects at all because it was being given in the place of the morally blemished worshiper. So look with me at the second point in your handout. Again, we're still asking, what does the burnt offering accomplish? What purpose does the burnt offering serve in the old covenant community? What is Israel being taught through this offering? Point number two, the Lord requires that the blood and body of the substitute be sacrificed to make atonement. And the worshiper must be identified with the sacrifice. Remember, this ritual of the burnt offering begins when the worshiper places his hand on the animal. And that action establishes a close relationship between the worshiper and his offering. Now, the text never tells us what that relationship is, but it seems reasonable that the laying on of his hand would indicate two things. First, the animal is taking the place of the worshiper. The worshiper is offering himself to God through the animal, and he is accepted into God's presence because the animal is accepted. Second, the worshiper is symbolically transferring their sin to the animal before the animal is killed. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, and, and chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus is the foundational pillar of the entire book. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron, the high priest, had to place his hands on the scapegoat. If you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 16. I want us to read a chunk of text here. It'll shine light on what we're looking at in Leviticus 1. Leviticus 16, 21. Aaron the high priest, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. 
and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The coat, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So do you see there's been a transfer of sin? And in chapter 1, with the burnt offering, the animal is dying in the worshiper's place as their substitute. The animal is identified with the worshiper, and the animal receives the death penalty because of the sin transferred to it by the laying on of the worshiper's hand. As the ritual begins, the worshiper pressed on the animal's head. And there's a very specific word being used here. It's not just like you're kind of with a limp wrist, just kind of resting your hand on it. You're actually, the worshiper is leaning in. The worshiper pressed on the animal's head with his hand and held it there while he slit the animal's throat. And so the animal died at the hand of the worshiper. It crumpled to the ground at the worshiper's feet, blood spraying everywhere. And the Israelite knew, and later Revelation confirmed this, that it should have been the worshiper's blood that was spraying everywhere. It should have been the worshiper's body laying lifeless at the altar before God. But instead, it's this bull, it's this goat, it's this sheep. And as the blood sprayed, the priest collected some of it in a basin, and then he splashed it against the altar. New City, the point is clear. The Lord requires the shedding of blood for atonement. That's what the Israelites are taking away from this part of God's law. And that's what they're thinking about as they walk back to their tent after the sacrifice is complete. As defiled and sinful people and Israelites' presence in the sanctuary, in God's presence for any reason, was only on the basis of their being sanctified by the substitutionary atonement of blood sacrifice. Life, which here is graphically represented by the animal's blood, life had to be given in exchange for any worshiper to draw near to God. And then the worshiper skins the animal and he cuts it into pieces and the priest places the parts on the altar. The cut up parts, the head, the fat, go on it directly. The entrails and legs only after having been washed. And then the sacrifice was entirely consumed by the fire of the Lord which means there are actually two parts to the sacrifice, and this needs to be very clear in our mind. Not only was life relinquished when the blood was shed, but the entire sacrifice was consumed by the fire of the Lord. Both those things. The Bible occasionally envisions the Lord with the imagery of a consuming fire, a fire that, that purifies, a fire that purges. And this aspect of the sacrificial system certainly falls in line with that. Life ended and the sacrifice wholly consumed. And what's the effect? Point C. The sacrifice 
atones. If all these things are in place, done according to the law of Moses, the sacrifice will atone. Look at verse 4. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Now, atonement is one of those words, I think, that Christians throw around quite a a bit. We've sort of cornered the market, I think, on that word. But what does it mean? This is good to know. Don't, Don't use Christian lingo unless you know what it means. Atonement consists of two things. The worshiper's sins are removed. We call that expiation. The sins are removed. And God's wrath against sin is appeased. We call that propitiation. Sins removed, God appeased. God's wrath appeased. The expiation of sin and the propitiation of God's just anger. That's the clearly stated purpose of the burnt offering. And what's the result? Point number three in your bulletin. The Lord is pleased with the sacrifice. We read that the burnt offering has a pleasing aroma to God. That's mentioned three times in the text. God loved the sacrifice. It pleased him. That's the effect of this burnt offering. God did not simply accept the worshiper and the offering. It gave him pleasure. So there we have it. But what does all this mean for us, New City, living in Toronto on the cusp of 2022? Here we've come uh, to our Sunday morning corporate worship service. This is the second day of Christmas, according to the liturgical calendar. And here I've been preaching a text about sacrificial bulls and goats and arterial blood sprays. Uh, But I've done so deliberately, friends. Because God wants us, God expects us to make certain chronological covenantal connections along the Bible storyline that lead up to Jesus. What did we see in last week's passage from Matthew chapter 1? We saw that Jesus is a savior. Jesus was born to die, to save guilty sinners from eternal condemnation. There is a trajectory of God's amazing saving grace from the manger in Bethlehem to the cross at Golgotha. And we must never forget that trajectory, lest it render what we customarily celebrate this season, the birth of Emmanuel, God with us, into something devoid of meaning, something sentimental, something insipid. We must understand. When God the Father prescribed all these regulations that we read of here in Leviticus chapter 1, and the whole book of Leviticus, uh, when when we read about all these things, Jesus' bloody substitutionary death was already on his mind. He knew he would send his eternal son to die for his people 1,500 years later on Calvary's Hill. As he's giving this law, he knows that's coming. That's why God instituted these animal sacrifices. They prepare the way for Jesus. They picture Jesus. They point to Jesus. They have their proper end in Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus. God's teaching Israel, and he's teaching us, that the Lord accepts with pleasure whoever comes into his presence by substitutionary atonement through the shedding of blood. 
these animal sacrifices are the shadows of the good things that would be coming with Jesus Christ. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10. As I'm sure many of you know, a distinctive dimension of Hebrews' balance of continuity and advance in God's redemptive plan is how it traces the relationship of Old Testament to New Testament by means of pattern, by means of escalation, of ratcheting things up. The Old Testament presents God-intended patterns or types to foreshadow in incomplete ways certain New Testament parallels that are true in a heightened or ultimate sense, a how much more sort of fulfillment. The central theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is God's final revelation. And his sacrifice on the cross provides full cleansing from sin and open access to God, a reality that the Old Testament anticipated but was never meant to accomplish. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law, that is the law covenant, the old covenant, the old system of animal sacrifices, priests, and tabernacle worship established by Moses. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Have you ever found yourself uh, watching a documentary about life in the, in the Middle Ages or some Dickensian drama set in filthy 19th century London and contrasting, you find yourself contrasting all the benefits and privileges that you enjoy now as a 21st century Canadian with the comparative misery of the characters in those shows. I mean, just like how women were treated back in the day or how, how far medicine had advanced or not advanced or just personal hygiene. <laughs> you, just, you watch these shows and you think, man, am I ever glad I, I wasn't alive back then. I'm glad I live now. Well, that's precisely how Christians should feel when we read a text like Leviticus chapter 1. When what we've just read, beloved, is the unenviable plight of every old covenant worshiper for 1,500 years, from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. And it's plain to see the law covenant of Moses, we read this in Hebrews chapter 10, the law covenant of Moses was never God's final plan for dealing with human sin and reconciling people to himself. It was never an eternal eschatological covenant. It had a built-in expiry date, like a, like a, a carton of milk. It was like a watch that was always winding down. The Mosaic covenant merely pointed ahead to the reality that is now ours, one in Jesus' death and resurrection. The law of Moses foreshadowed the full salvation that Jesus would secure. 
the old covenant shadow, prepared Israel for the new covenant's eternal substance. But for this reason, because the law covenant was only the preliminary sketch, it could never, by the same animal sacrifices repeated year after year after year, by, the, by, by, the, you know, by mortal priests, high priests who died and died and died, they could never, ever make perfect those who drew near to God in worship. The rivers of animal blood shed under the law covenant, the generations of mortal high priestly intercessors, the entire law system, it merely provided ceremonial ritual purification. It was a stopgap measure. It was a temporary expedient. And when the sacrifices and intercessions were all complete and the Israelites walked back to their tents, what had it actually all accomplished? Just this, God's covenant people could live in the localized, tabernacling presence of God one more year without being destroyed. They were ritually pure. They were ceremonially clean. But their sin had not been finally, perfectly, decisively atoned for. And they went to bed that night knowing it. They went to bed with that fact hanging over their heads. We read that in Hebrews chapter 10. Brothers and sisters in Christ, something we consider as take it for granted basic as the decisive forgiveness of sin, Moses never knew it. David never knew it. Isaiah never knew it. Now, I want to tell you something remarkable. I was driving down the road the other day, and I saw that my gas tank was nearly empty. So I stopped at a gas station, and I, I pulled out my wallet, and I, I scanned this, this little plastic card that says Visa on the bottom, and I, and I just scanned it in front of the thing, and then I filled my tank with gas, and then I just drove away. I never went into the store. I never actually pulled any cash out of my wallet, and, and to this day, I haven't paid for that gas. Now, I got free gas, right, just by waving a plastic card in front of a scanner at the fuel pump. How cool is that? Now, you're chuckling because you know that at the end of the month, I'm going to receive a bill from the credit card company. That wasn't free gas. I, I just I bought it on credit. And at the end of the month... The bill comes due. Old Testament saints who offered up animal sacrifices in faith, they were genuinely forgiven by God. We will see Moses and David and Isaiah in the new heavens and new earth. But who paid for it? The animal they slaughtered didn't pay for it. Jesus paid for it at the cross. Old Testament, were, Old Testament saints were saved on credit, but Jesus is the one who finally paid the bill. Old Testament saints, Old Testament sacrifices rather, were valid in God's mind 
based on Jesus' future sacrifice. It is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What was required was the unrepeatable sacrificial offering of Jesus' body in fulfillment of the will of God. And that was what God had planned from before the creation of the universe. That is what the law of Moses always, always pointed to. You cannot read your Old Testament, which is three quarters of the Bible, without that understanding. It won't make sense. It's what the law of Moses always pointed to. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. It finds its valid continuity and fulfillment. It points to him, to Jesus, to Jesus. His is a sacrifice which alone fully atones for sin. And his is a sacrifice which renders obsolete, forever obsolete, the law of Moses and its repeated ineffectual offerings for sins. Animals, ignorant beasts, and part of this fallen world could never provide the same sacrifice as Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. He is fully rational. He's not an ignorant animal. He willingly went to the cross on behalf of his people in obedience to his Father's will. He is completely sinless. He is infinitely holy. And he identifies fully with human beings. What's required to atone for human sin is the unrepeatable sacrificial offering of Jesus' human body in fulfillment of the will of God. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, quoting Psalm 40, Animal sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And that Old Testament quotation is very important. Stop and think for a moment what verse 5 is telling us. But a body you prepared for me. We read in John 4, 24 that God is spirit. God is incorporeal, right? He He doesn't have a body. And before his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth, The second person of the divine trinity, the eternal son, was spirit. And what we read in verse 5 is that all throughout the old covenant, God did not desire, he was not pleased with animal sacrifices. And that's not a contradiction of what was said three times in Leviticus chapter 1, that the sacrifice of burnt offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God certainly was pleased with all those offerings insofar as they were sufficient for a sinful people to dwell in his presence in the camp. God did not explode in holy fire against the nation of Israel for their sins. But those animal sacrifices were not ultimately pleasing to God because they would never decisively on their own deal with human sin. Those sacrifices only, only worked on credit. Jesus was the one who had to pay the bill. Therefore, God prepared a physical body for his eternal son, a human body, so that he could be that perfect, pleasing sacrifice. That's the argument. That's the flow of the text. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, Animal sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body 
you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Brothers and sisters, it was always the will of God that we should be made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. It was prophesied in scripture. It was foreordained. It is written about me in the scroll, Jesus says. The Shekinah glory, filling the tabernacle in the temple, uh, bearing witness, being witness to the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the pillars of smoke and fire. While they were alive, the old covenant saints would have traded all of those blessings away in a heartbeat to be sitting with us today on the second day of Christmas, celebrating the Lord's Supper and all that it signifies with cleansed consciences, filled with the Spirit, partakers of the new covenant, a better covenant with better promises, a better high priest, a better Sabbath rest, a better temple, a better sacrifice. Jesus is better. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Not the, not the most holy place of the old tabernacle or temple, but the very presence of the living God. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And this ordinance, brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper, this represents the finished work of Jesus Christ. The eternal Son taking on flesh in fulfillment of his Father's will was to a purposeful, beneficial end for us. The setting aside of the first covenant and establishing the second according to God's will was to a purposeful, beneficial end. For us, we have been made holy to the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ for all time. We have been made fit by Jesus to draw near to God in worship for all time. We can now offer up to God acceptable worship. There is no longer a barrier. There is no longer any need for distance and human priestly mediators sprinkling ineffectual animal blood that cleanses only outward defilement and not the defiled conscience because we've received an inward cleansing from sin for all time. There is no need for further sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice is unrepeatable for all time. The sanctification his, sanct his sacrifice affects is perfect and complete for all time. And we say, hallelujah, what a savior. And as we celebrate this table now together, as the blood-bought, forgiven children of God, we remember and proclaim Jesus' death, his sacrifice which atones for sin. We remember his expiatory sacrifice, his propitiatory sacrifice, and the new covenant confirmed in his precious blood. Amen. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Father, we thank you. Thank you for purposing the new covenant.
Thank you for determining in eternity past that Jesus should ratify the new covenant and bring a redeemed humanity to glory by his death. Thank you for determining that he would bear our sins in his own body, that he who knew no sin would be made sin, that we might be declared righteous by you in your court of judgment. Thank you, Father, that you prepared for your eternal son a body, that he might suffer and die as a man for men and women. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming our substitute, my substitute. Thank you for bearing in your body our judgment and our punishment, my judgment, my punishment. For bearing the wrath that should have been placed on us, on me. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, which represents your body, your blood, may we be mindful of these things, that when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Amen.